This is a podcast. This is a podcast. I'm your host, Ashley. I'm your other host, Corey. And this is the ADHD book club podcast, to be specific. (laughs) It is. It definitely is. We're definitely prepared to do this. We're definitely totally on top of it. Very on top of it. Um, I definitely did not make breakfast and then decide that I wanted to try a new nail polish and forget that I made breakfast and then found my breakfast again and have it sitting here like uneaten and soggy. <laughs> I'm sure I have half a cup of cold coffee downstairs just hanging out. I have my half cup of cold coffee with me. Um, and I'll probably drink a little bit now, uh, and then finish it this afternoon, like usual. It's like a thing now. <laughs> I used to, I used to care about keeping my like hot coffee hot, and now I don't. What's the point? Yeah, same. If it's cold, I just chug it. I'm just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. Also, on my breakfast, I made like a bougie fruit bowl, so it's even more sad because it's all the bougie, expensive ingredients. Like cacao nibs and goji berries and shit, chia seeds, mangoes. Just a bunch of (laughs) soggy, expensive fruits and nuts. Yeah. So I think I could blend it into a smoothie later if I was salvaging it, which I should. I should salvage it. There you go. (laughs) Waste not. Problem solved. (laughs) (sighs) This episode, we're discussing... The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. Is that how you say it? I think so. I hope so. That's how I'm going to say it. Paul Tremblay. You may also recognize this as A Knock at the Cabin. Yes. The new M. Night Shyamalan movie that by the time this episode goes live will have been out and might even be streaming. So It's true. Yeah, if you're interested in carbon dating when we record these things, I think the movie came out a week or two ago, but uh, that's not how we release these. Yeah, that's not how podcasting works, guys. (laughs) Behind the scenes right now. If you want these on time and weekly, subscribe to our non-existent Patreon and we'll consider it. (laughs) Make it worth our time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. What? I am pug sitting for an extra pug. So there's two pugs and they are both extra loud today. So it's the sweet, gentle rumblings of pug snoring, the background of our podcast. <laughs> yeah. And occasional fire alarm chirps. Look, one, one of these days, these problems will be solved. <laughs> Maybe. We're just two kids making a podcast. What do you expect? <laughs> <laughs> like, like Christian Slater in Pump Up the Volume, a very current, normal reference to make. Not- <laughs> Is it a movie? An ancient fucking movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's a movie, so you wouldn't know about it anyway. Hey, but, you know, our many listeners might, and you may always make your movie references, and I will most likely not know them. That's fair. But that's fine. Someone will think it's funny. I think it's funny. Ha ha. Perfect. Great. (laughs) All right. So this is first a book from 2018. It's a horror novel. And second... A movie by M. Night Shyamalan from 2022. 23. From 2023. <laughs> Look, I, I think you got to read books, but also this is one that I think you could watch it and listen. Do you agree with that? 
I mean, as a, like listen like an audiobook or no, like listen to our podcast. You could like just watch it and listen. Oh, I mean, you you could. I feel like the book is like there is a specific point in the movie where the book and the movie diverge. And until then, they are very much exactly the same. Like mind-blowing, line for line, the same. <laughs> right. But I feel like that last like quarter or third or whatever that are different are very different. Yeah. So. Yeah, we always recommend the book. But if you don't feel like reading, you could, you could join in on this by join in, I mean, listen to this conversation and understand most of what we're saying with the movie. It's true. Also, the book is definitely more depressing. Yeah, it's pretty depressing, but not very long. What did we say? This was, oh, I mean, a little longer, nine hours and 25 minutes. Not a difficult read, I would say. Like It kind of kept, kept me engaged, kept me going. Yeah. Anyways, I don't know. Whatever. Listen to it. Watch it. Whatever you'd like. We're not going to make you read this book. (laughs) This book is 281 pages. And all right. Shall we start with our summaries? Let's do it. I think you're first this time. Um, All right. A family's peaceful off-the-grid cabin getaway is interrupted by four strangers heeding apocalyptic repercussions if they don't make the impossible decision to sacrifice one of their own to save all of humanity. That's uh, one whole sentence. <laughs> Why did I do it like that? <laughs> it's great. It's perfect. My summary, Eric and Andrew and their daughter Wen are on vacation in a remote cabin. Four strangers show up and have some terrible news for them. (laughs) (laughs) Shall I get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. All right. Spoiler on three. One, two, two, three. three. Spoiler. (laughs) Why is that my favorite part? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Eric, Andrew, and Wen are at a cabin in the woods, like we said. They're enjoying their very peaceful vacation together when a nice gigantic stranger, Leonard, comes upon when catching grasshoppers and trying to learn about them, I guess. When is so cute. How old is she? Eight? Uh, yeah, she's like seven or eight in the. Yeah. I remember in the movie her saying she's almost eight. She's a little kiddo, a very smart kiddo. She was. Her perspectives were probably more than she would have truly been knowing, but... Right. Yeah, I guess one interesting thing about the book versus the movie is that the book kind of jumps around from person to person telling the story from their perspective. I know we get Eric, and we get Andrew, and we get Wen. Do we ever get... I feel like we get Sabrina at one point. Do we ever get Leonard? We get Leonard and Sabrina at the same time or something. Like, I think that one of the... The four strangers are Leonard, Redmond, Sabrina, and Adrian? Yes. Yeah. Two men, two women. Leonard is big, and he's kind of the main mouthpiece for the group. And Sabrina's the nurse. Adrian, what does Adrian do? I know in the movie she's like a line like she's a line cook in a restaurant, but is that the same as in the book? I think so. And then Redmond is Redmond. Redmond's a dick. 
He is. And he works for the gas company. Although I feel like that was <laughs> maybe an addition in the movie. It actually, that was true. He says like that exact same thing in the book. That's funny. You saw the movie and then read the book. And I had read the book. I had actually read this before maybe a year or two ago, but kind of there was actually one major thing I totally forgot about. Then I read it again and then just saw the movie a couple days ago. So it'll be interesting to see what we, what each of us remembers. So when I went to see it, I had started the book, but I was basically just at the part where they like knocked. So the beginning of the book with when and Leonard, that whole conversation and then the knock and them trying to get in and Eric and Andrew not allowing it. Sabrina's awkward, like, hey, like, don't want to hurt you. Just want to <laughs> come in. That is like exactly how she says it in the movie, although it might have been Adrian that said that in the movie. I don't know, but it was literally exactly how the audiobook reader read it, which was like blew my mind. That's funny. Um, so yeah, I'd only been a little, a little bit into the book before I saw the movie. Um, that was just timing. Uh, so it was interesting, I guess, because I basically saw the movie first. But yeah, so they come to the cabin. Leonard sort of meets Wen, starts to make friends with her, but then he kind of freaks her out and she goes inside or she goes and gets Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew. And they lock themselves in the cabin, and then the four strangers try and get in, which they eventually do. Um, can I say it just sounds weird for adults to say Daddy Eric and Daddy Andrew out loud? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I will probably mostly call them Eric and Andrew at this point from now on. Um, yes, so that happens. There is initial surprise at them being a same-sex couple, which is never really, like, they have that in the book as well. Like, we didn't know it would be you. But I don't, like, they didn't really address why. Like, maybe that's because it's just another obstacle into them doing what they need, right? Like, now they think it's a hate crime instead of just crime. Right. I think that, uh, yeah, I think that's basically it, is I think you can sort of see it on Dave Batista's face when Wen tells him about her two dads. And he's like, oh, great. Now I have to do a hate crime. Yeah. So they come in. They've got these insane weapons. Daddy Andrew and Daddy Eric are freaking out. So they have to use force, which gives Daddy Eric a big old concussion, which is going to hinder his judgment, which they can't have because they need them to make this choice, this insane choice. Right. To sacrifice one of their own. They all decide together so that they can save the world. Yes, the apocalypse will happen if they don't choose one of their family to sacrifice and then kill them. I mean, absolutely insane ask. <laughs> when would you ever believe that? Right. Yeah, never. Never. I mean, you could see it. That was kind of one of my favorite parts about Rupert Grint and his acting and his attitude from the beginning is like, I know they're not going to believe us right away, so I'm going to have to die. This fucking sucks. Yeah, good point. <laughs> also, in the movie, when he started talking with his like Boston accent, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? It was like so intense. And then I forgot about that. And in the book, when he starts like talking about himself, they say he uses an over-exaggerated Boston accent like in a mocking way. And then he kind of like it tapers back down into his normal speech pattern. So that was actually in the movie. 
in that insane way he first was speaking, which you, we just thought would be like Rupert Grant doing a really bad like Boston American accent or something. No, and I thought he was great in this. Yeah. I mean, he's not in it for very long because he's the first one to die, but it definitely made me want to watch Servant. Oh, yeah. The M. Night Shyamalan show on Apple Plus that I've never watched at all. But I was like, ooh. I forgot that that was M. Night and that he was also in that. I started it and then I forgot to finish it. But I've seen some posters lately and I'm like, oh, yeah, I should finish that. It was weird. Yeah, I think like a new season of it just dropped or something. All right, let's let's watch it. Okay. (laughs) Um, I thought everyone was actually really great in the movie. That was like it was all good acting all around, I think. I did, too. David Batista was perfect. So I'd already gotten to the part in the book where he knocks and they see him. So in the book, they like peek through the window and they go, this guy's fucking huge. And they did it in the movie, too, which was funny to me. But when I heard that in the book, I was like, well, that makes sense because it's like David Batista. He is fucking huge. Like, why is this like the calm, young, peaceful man in the book? But just that little line kind of like helped be like, This is why he is huge. He's like meant to be the calmest, but also like the biggest. Yeah, they definitely describe him as enormous in the book. They delivered. Yeah, I thought he was great. So yeah, like they, Eric and Andrew refuse, of course. And so then they basically like ritualistically kill Redmond after he like pulls like a hood over his face. And then there were some interesting additions to the movie, like kind of little, little, little additions. Like each of them, when they die, says like a portion of humanity has been judged or something like that. Yeah. There's a specific thing that they say and that that, that's not in the book. They say that if you don't make a choice, then killing Redmond or killing any of them will unleash the next step of this apocalypse, right? So the first one was the big waves, the tsunami, the earthquake. So killing Redmond unleashed the tsunami, right? Right. And in the book, it's not that like killing them unleashes something. It's that they are having to sacrifice them before they can make the next decision or something. Yeah, it's framed like slightly different in the book. Like in the book, it's framed like they have to make a decision by a certain time and if they don't, there is a consequence. And the consequence is that one of them has to be killed, like one of the group, and that, yeah, that like one of the bad things will happen. I wanted to say plagues, but that's kind of how it's framed in the movie, but not in the book. Like they don't say like, oh, you unleashed another plague. Right. It's more clear in the book that the invaders all kind of go into a fugue state when they kill someone it's hinted at in the movie like they sort of like snap out of it and react after it happened as if they sort of were not quite fully present when they were doing it but in the book it's like very clear that they they almost like go into a trance and couldn't stop doing this even if they tried to yeah I didn't quite catch that in the movie I think because I hadn't known that before watching it so I think I I didn't quite notice that could have been me. But yeah, so I think it was like pretty subtle. Yeah, I noticed because I was looking for it. Yeah, like the only thing that I had was like, will he knock seven times? Because she they say like Leonard and Wen are having a conversation at the beginning, something about the number seven. And he said seven isn't always lucky. And then when he knocks on the cabin door, he knocks seven times, which I thought there'd be more symbolism again with seven. But I didn't 
register any if there was. Right. But in the movie, they they don't even have that conversation. But he does knock seven times, which I was like, yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess there are seven people in the cabin initially. Yeah. Yeah. Initially. (laughs) R.I.P. Redmond. Redmond is awful. He's going to be the first to go. He's a dick. He knows it. When I read these books, I think a lot about these like situations. Like, what would I do if someone was saying this to me? And right. I think I would act like Andrew. Like, none of this makes sense. He's so on top of like, this was already happening before. This was this. This was that. You know, the final cherry on top of this is all fake is the fact that Redmond is the guy that he got into a bar fight with years ago. He basically doesn't realize that until... Kind of like well into the invasion. Yeah, exactly. And I don't even know if he officially looked at his wallet in the book. I feel like he didn't in the book. I don't think he did. It kind of switched to him just calling him O'Bannon now. And he was like so certain of it. So I guess, yeah, that's another thing that's kind of up in the air to decide for the reader. Yeah. Just like the ending. (laughs) Right. Yes. The book in general is much more vague about the entire situation yes but you know okay so my favorite thing that we did not get in the movie was sabrina's chapter where she really goes into how this felt for her like how she got the messages that fugue state what that felt like how she found herself places she didn't mean to be what she heard and experienced Um, How she arrived and saw everyone wearing the same clothes and the certain colors and knowing exactly what it all meant and knew what they had to do. And like, I thought that was so interesting to really lay it out. Whereas like if you read a review of the movie, they're like, oh, what do you think about this theory that they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse? And it's like it's it's literally in the book that they are. It's literally in the book, but (laughs) in a much less dorky way i guess to address this i feel like we have to jump around a bunch in the story and the movie because sabrina sabrina is just sort of like oh there's four of us we're in four different shirts we're kind of like the four horsemen of the apocalypse right Mm -hmm. and then in the movie jonathan groff has to like absolutely literalize everything that's happening and he's like don't you see there they were the four horsemen of the apocalypse they represent four different parts of humanity he did say that out loud oh jonathan graff says it out loud at the very end and it's like the fucking worst okay that's right it's the one part of the movie that i was just like no thank you this is stupid (laughs) uh like the rest of it i actually really love because i keep seeing like this theory about the four horsemen so i'm like what do you mean theory it's like literally in the book so i assumed it wasn't in the movie but i guess you're right it's in the fucking movie it's in the movie only in like a much more ham-fisted way Should we just give a brief overview of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse for anyone listening that's like not on top of it, like me? I mean, yeah, what is it? War, famine, pestilence, and... The Antichrist. And they each came in on a specifically colored horse. So uh, let's see. The first horseman rides a white horse, and he's the the horseman of conquest. What do you call this? War. Perhaps invoking pestilence, Christ, or the Antichrist. The second carries a sword and rides... Wait, what? Where are you reading this from? This is like not my understanding of the Four Horsemen at all. Wikipedia and I listened to a podcast and it sounded the same. What? Okay, I'll read this. Ready? Yes. Okay, I'll stop interrupting you. (laughs) 
Uh, Revelation 6 tells of a book or scroll in God's right hand that is sealed with seven seals. <gasps> there it is, the seven. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. The Lamb of God slash Lion of Judah opens the first four of the seven seals, which summons four beings that ride out on white, red, black, and pale horses. In John's Revelation, the first horseman rides a white horse, carries a bow, and is given a crown as a figure of conquest, perhaps invoking pestilence, Christ, or the Antichrist. The second carries a sword and rides a red horse as the creator of, in parentheses, civil, war, conflict, and strife. The third, a food merchant, rides a black horse symbolizing famine and carries the scales. The fourth and final horse is pale. Upon it rides death, accompanied by Hades. Okay. They were given authority over a quarter of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and plague, and by means of the beasts of the earth. Okay. War, famine, pestilence, and death. They don't even like map that cleanly onto that anyway, I guess. I mean, I feel like Sabrina's take in the book is more interesting where it's just sort of like, oh, there's four of us and there's four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Like, and that's kind of the most connection that she makes because the four things that happen definitely don't like map on to these four things no and then like in the movie they totally change it because at first he's like they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse and then he's like and they represent four aspects of humanity oh yeah malice which is redmond and then healing which is sabrina the nurse mm -hmm. uh nurturing which is adrian because because she's a mom yeah and then what was leonard leonard i forget what the hell leonard was called I mean, he was like a teacher, but he didn't use the word teach. It was like, oh, direction, I think is what he said. Um, and I was just like, okay, I guess you nerd. You nerd. <laughs> but yeah, it was so weird that that was like the connection that he made. Uh, they're like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They represent these four things that have nothing to do with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, and fun fact. In the book, Andrew taught a class on apocalyptic literature. So he, the skeptic from the beginning, was incredibly aware. So when Sabrina is like, this is what it is, he's like, duh. And he like finishes her sentence, basically. Right. I forgot. And in the movie, he's a human rights lawyer. He's not a literature professor. Oh, right. Because in the movie, he's sort of cynical about humanity kind of because he has seen and had direct kind of interaction with all of this horrible stuff and in the book he's a bit of a cynic of humanity because of the apocalyptic literature where his main arguments with the students remains constant and he says no matter how bleak or dire end of the world scenarios appeal to us because we take meaning from the end it's like we like it because there's something to learn from it and that's like narcissistic right Yes. Yeah. My take on it has always been that uh, if you die in the apocalypse, you don't have to think about the world going on without you because it doesn't. Exactly. That's true. <laughs> like if I'm going to die, I'd rather we just all do it together. Yeah. Look, we're all dying. <laughs> not just me. It's like the ultimate FOMO if I die. <laughs> dying. The ultimate FOMO. Should we put it on a shirt, Corey? Goes on a shirt. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um. The weapons, I think, were also symbolic of the Four Horsemen. I think they were fashioned in a certain way to, like, evoke something of the symbolism. 
Yeah. And I guess when they kill Redmond, that's sort of where it first slightly starts to depart the movie and the book. I mean, some of these are little things, but like in the book, Redmond made all the weapons. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, they each made their own. It was one of those like, why did you bother to change this? I'm not sure what this means that you changed this. Yeah. Other than Sabrina sort of briefly talks about how it felt to like make her weapon. Like she has like literally one line about that in the movie. And I picked up on it just because I was like, it's weird that they made their own instead of Redmond making all of them. Yeah. There was a comment in the book where they, you know, when they saw the weapons that Redmond had made for all of them, they all sort of had a feeling about it. Yeah, and like one of them made the white sheet thing, the white thing they put over their face. Yeah, the nurse made all of the masks, I think, because it was some sort of like medical mesh stuff that she used. Mm. And I think in the in the movie, maybe the the reason for the change is that they all kind of like met on a dock or something. So you know, you're arriving these four people dressed the same holding the same tools, having the same things to kind of like solidify their meeting where in the book, I I don't know. I think they kind of planned to meet, but then we're trying like Sabrina was like, I didn't want to go. And the next thing I know, I'm on an airplane. Like they all kind of ended up there instead of as purposeful of a meeting as in the movie. Right. I think that's true. (laughs) No, I just like I'm trying to. I could be wrong. I know. I'm trying to pull apart the difference because I like if I had to commit to an answer, I would say that, yes, you're right. In the movie, they say that they planned to meet over the message board, right? Yeah. And there, there is talk of them like talking on a message board in the book. But I don't think any of the planning happened on the message board. I think that was sort of how they knew that it was real is because they weren't like planning. Right. They did talk about all having the same visions, but then they just sort of knew what to do and knew where to be. What to wear. And what to wear. And when they got there, everyone was there. And that's like sort of in the movie, but there's a little bit more like, yeah, we we made a plan and we're executing it now. Yeah. I wish the movie would have given us Sabrina's kind of flashbacks because we got everyone else's flashbacks, right? Like, well, Andrew and Eric's, but we didn't get any from the horsemen and Sabrina's story of where she really kind of felt this was real was when she just had a feeling she needed to take a drive and took like a two hour drive and went onto some like weird road and didn't know why and then ended up at this weird thing and didn't know why and then everything went dark and that that was I think her like the first time she really realized that something real was happening to her right and I feel like that would have been really good to see but we never got I guess we didn't get any backstory from them in the movie for a reason right and I feel like as soon as you do that then you're like I mean I'm sure there's a way to do it but as soon as you do that in a pretty concrete way then you're kind of tipping your hand as to whether or not this is really happening or these people are delusional, right? Yeah. And in the movie, the point is it's really happening. And we see that officially at the end. Everything is real. We kill off daddy Eric to save the world. That's how the movie ends. We didn't need her story to make it real because we had the ending more solidified in the movie. Right. Yeah. 
But also, could you imagine planes just like falling for? Oh my god, that, was, that made me not want to ever fucking fly again. That was fucking wild to see. Yeah, in the movie, it was and the wall of water, and then the people just still recording. Okay, it. also, how did was... how did the phone be recording underwater and then send it? To, like, were they live and it just didn't turn off, and they someone recorded it and got it? Like, what? How did they get that? <laughs> right, that was my question. Both while reading the book and watching the movie, I was like, how does anyone have this video footage in the? movie i suppose i guess both times i rationalized to myself that they were like live streaming or something right yeah and so someone was able to capture it yeah and and i guess that that has to be because otherwise it's like how do you have this footage this is wild what did you they they literally just got murdered by water this person is dead and their phone is dead this person is very dead but so trippy for it to be Cannon Beach. I lived in Portland for six years, visited Cannon Beach often, and it was it's like so beautiful and it was just so wild to see like behind those gorgeous massive rocks, this like wall of water. It was really well done, the like CGI stuff. M. Night Shyamalan is such a like Spielberg Amblin entertainment nut that I was really surprised that he skipped the part in the book where Adrian is like, it's the Goonies beach. This is the Goonies beach. I've been there. I love the Goonies. What the fuck? Maybe they didn't get the rights to say it or something. To say the word Goonies? Like I I feel. (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. She was so excited about that. It is the Goonies beach. (laughs) Kind of. Just part of it. It's not really all there. Just the rocks. The rest was like Astoria. Right, right. Whatever. You know, the movie magic. Yeah. Movies. Anyways, all of those things were terrifying. I did find it interesting that the plague in the book that was published in 2018 started in China as well as the plague that we just experienced called COVID. Yeah, that is interesting. And I wonder what, yeah. Maybe God was speaking to him. Was it just China in the book? Because in the movie, they point out like three separate outbreak points, right? Uh, I think it was just China in the book, but then it was spreading really fast. But you know what? You're right. I don't know. Maybe there are more. And I just kind of heard China and was like, whoa. (laughs) Right. Because, yeah, I know the movie. It was like Tennessee and China and somewhere in South Africa. Right. Like there were three separate simultaneous outbreaks which again like kind of underlines the this is not like a natural phenomenon thing right right this is something this is something weird happening so the timing you know andrew was just such a good denier of all of this and like logical grounded character you know seeing like they're looking at their watches because it's all going to happen at a certain time this has all been going on so for most of the time you're really unsure of what is real like which one is it? Is it the end of the world? Like Eric has a concussion, but he saw a figure in the light a couple times. In the movie, he just sees a bright light. There's no figure in it unless I missed it. No, I was specifically looking for that and I didn't see it. So, But he's also like deeply concussed. So he's an unreliable witness here. Right. Of course. And he's also much more religious. I don't think they talk about his religion in the movie. But in the book, he is religious. He comes from a religious background and he likes to go to church sometimes. Yeah. I feel like it's very, very lightly touched on in the movie, but not in... Yeah, not in any sort of direct way. Yeah. So then you have the voice of reason, Andrew... And I mean, the whole time they really, really talk it down. Like, it's so hard to tell what's happening. Like, the timing is weird. Some of it could just be this. Some of it could be that. Like, are we sure? Right. Like, the program about the outbreak 
was like a recorded program that was scheduled to be aired, right? Like it wasn't like a live breaking news thing, I guess. My favorite explanation was when Andrew was like, planes go down all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Really reaching. I Like I'm sure our air traffic control system is computerized to the extent that you could maybe rationalize that as some sort of like cyber attack right yeah i doubt that that's possible i doubt you could do a computer thing that would make all the planes in the air fall out of the sky but like (sighs) i would guess that you could do some sort of you know hacking type thing I would guess you could fuck up like the air traffic control system or some sort of airplane thing that would, you know, mess up a bunch of planes at once. Yeah. Uh, Please don't do that. Dear terrorists, please don't ever do that. That sounds awful. Please never. Like do anything else. Just not. Yeah. Nothing else, please. I mean, no, don't do anything. But like, don't. Oh, my God. Zero. That was horrific. I don't. I already hate flying. It's like magic. I don't understand like physics whenever. But like, I don't get it. Like, how does this gigantic ass aircraft like you can't make me understand? I don't care what you tell me. It's magic. And I don't like it. And then watching all these (laughs) gigantic boats in the air just fly down was crazy. You can't make me understand it. <laughs> it won't work. No, for sure. I just look at the flight attendants and I'm like, look, if they're fine, I'm fine. Because if they're going to die, they're not going to be fine. So if they think everything's fine, then it's fine. They're not out here risking their lives to like serve tables on a plane. Right. That is basically the same trick I pull on myself every time. Because uh, I feel like at least once per flight, I have the intrusive thought, we're just in a metal tube in the air. Yeah, it's awful. And there's that time where you like get to that cruising altitude where it feels like everything stops. Yeah. It's just suddenly like quiet. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And when you can feel like when the plane starts to descend, that just sort of like, and you're like, what? Yeah. (laughs) It's not great. Not great. It's not a normal feeling that your human body is supposed to feel. That's for sure. We were not built to be flying through the air at warp speeds. Yuck. That's dramatic. Yeah, warp warp speed. (laughs) Uh, All right, so let's get to it then. The book and movie really start to change pace. Uh, I mean, the second killing in the book was... Was Sabrina? No, it's Adrian. It's Adrian in both. It is still Adrian. Okay. Yeah, but there's a big time gap in between the first and the second one, which is interesting. Like, they kill Redmond, and they see the tsunami and the earthquake on the news, and then they're just like, well, get some rest, because you have a decision to make in the morning. But in the movie, they don't do any more ritualistic killings as expected. They are all killed off in weird ways, and then they put the, like, white mask on then afterwards to try to continue doing it but like adrian got shot in the neck did she yeah it was like her whole gargled neck noises really grossed me out okay was she she's the one who chases andrew out to the car in the book right i think it is sabrina and then she runs away for a while but adrian does well no because he already had the gun so maybe it was adrian but sabrina runs away for a while maybe they both go i'm confused now but i know that adrian gets like shot in the neck and it's weird and then like none of them in the book have the same like ritual again like in the movie they all kill adrian together and then they all kill sabrina right and then leonard is like the last one standing sabrina gets shot in the movie oh like gut shot oh right okay 
And then in the book, she shoots herself, um, but she's also trying to give them a warning. She's like trying. Yeah, she's the last one, though. In the book, it's different. In the book, she's the last one, not Leonard. Which makes sense. She's the final horseman, the horseman of death. So she's the last one standing in the book. And you really get the sense of the, like, something's taking her over because she's trying to, like, save these guys. But it's true. But will say the wrong thing and is like, no, I didn't want to say that. But we're totally skipping the biggest difference between the movie and the book. This was the thing that when I reread the book, I was like, oh, fuck, I forgot that this happened. Yeah. And the whole time I was watching the movie, I was like, they can't do this, can they? They're not going to do this, are they? They're not going to. They're not going to. They didn't. In the book, Andrew and Leonard are wrestling over Andrew's gun, and it goes off, and Wen dies. Yeah. They kill Wen. This is probably like two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the book. She's dead for quite a bit of the book. Yes. And that is not a sacrifice because that was not chosen. Yeah. It doesn't count. Even though it was technically by Andrew's hand with Leonard having accidentally squeezed his hand to squeeze the trigger or something. Yeah. Like Leonard basically while he's trying to get the gun, like he basically tries to crush Andrew's hand so that he'll let go of the gun. Mm -hmm. Like he clamps down really hard and he pulls the trigger and the gun goes off. Yeah. By the way, side note, I was really, really annoyed that Leonard didn't put his mask on before he killed himself in the movie. Oh, that's right. So in the book, Andrew comes inside with the gun. Adrian dies. Leonard and Andrew accidentally shoot Wen. And it's just like very clear immediately <laughs> that Wen dies. Like it's not even like, oh, is she going to be okay? Is she going to survive? It's just like, boom, shot, dead. A little bit later, Sabrina is like, oh my God, I didn't even check on her to make sure I'm a nurse. I could have helped if there was any chance of helping. Right. But she was like shot in the head right away. Yeah. Ooh. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah. But so then that, you know, Leonard is like, I don't know if it counts. I know she died, but also, like, it's supposed to be a willing sacrifice. Turn the TV on, turn the TV on, turn the TV on, turn the TV on. Right. And then the third apocalypse thing happens, which is that's when the planes start falling out of the sky. Yeah. So then Leonard dies. How does Leonard die? I forget. Like, I remember he sits on the couch. In the book? Yeah. Sabrina kills him. Okay. She hits Leonard in the head with a weapon. I think he's maybe tied up or something. I don't know if he wanted to go. I think she was just, like, done with all of this. Right. Okay. Yeah. But he also kind of like knows that he's going to die. It's like they all do, right? Right. My impression, I guess, from the book was that he was supposed to be the last one kind of like in the movie, but also he knew that like something had changed. Right. Like yeah. he sort of like, like, I just got the impression that he was just like, oh, I guess I'm gonna die. Yeah. Because Sabrina kills him and then puts the mask on him after he's dead. But then she basically, like, tries to, like, let them go. Yeah. She takes them to the car. She shows them where she thought that they buried the car keys. Which is where they did, but there was also a gun in there. Did they actually find the car keys there, too, though? Or just does she just find the gun? Oh, I thought they were there, but I don't know. I don't remember either, for sure. Because she was like, I didn't know the gun was here. I didn't know. I swear I didn't know it was here. So it's like, here are the keys. And then she pulled out something else, I think. But I could be wrong. Right. And she pulls out a gun and she's sort of basically like half in a fugue state again where she pulls out this gun and is just like, 
I can't stop this. I can't. She's battling that other thing. Right. She's trying to tell them to run, but then is like, you still have a chance to make a choice. And then she's like, that's not what I wanted to say. And she's going to say some one more thing. And then her arm like mechanically, like how they described it was actually really cool. Cause it was like, looked like mechanical hell rose up and shot herself in the head because she was, you know, taken over by something else. Right. Yeah. And so she dies. I mean, and then basically, I feel like the description of this is deliberately kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It's just Eric and Andrew left. My mental picture of what's happening is that sort of like everything is kind of like burning around them. They're sort of talking about what's happening, but I feel like it's interesting. I was listening to a couple other people talk about this a couple days ago, and they had not read the book. They had watched the movie and they had only read like the Wikipedia summary of the book. In their conversation, their takeaway was that Eric and Andrew like actively and defiantly are like, fuck you, whatever God would let our daughter die like this. Like we're not killing ourselves. We're not sacrificing ourselves for that God. Right. Mm -hmm. That was not the vibe I got when I was listening to it. I think it was Andrew was like, you cannot tell me that whatever God this is wouldn't think that when is a worthy enough sacrifice. Right. I remember him saying that, but I don't feel like we're clear on what happens or what is going to happen by the end of the book. There's no answer if it's real or not or what their choice is. Right. At the end of the book, shit is bad and things are going crazy. Mm -hmm. And then it just sort of ends. Right. Like they don't. When they're like, I'll never leave you. I'll never leave you. I'll never kill you. We, We will never make this choice. I love you. And then they walk off into the burning sunset together. For some reason, I was thinking it was even more ambiguous than that, where they do kind of say that they talk about how much they love each other, but it's still sort of like open to interpretation whether or not one of them is going to kill the other one. It did feel open, open interpretation if they might make that choice or open if it's even really happening. Like we just don't know, like it could have just been a couple planes. It could just be a storm rolling in like there still isn't quite an answer at the end of the book. Right. That was very much how I felt, at least, about the ending of the book. Yeah. And then the movie was like, okay, we're making a choice. We're killing Eric and everything immediately gets better. And wow, surprise, not even that many people died because of something crazy. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Eric makes his four horsemen speech and he's like, I love you. You have to kill me, but I love you. I've seen our daughter in the future. Kill me while I have a happy thought about our daughter. No. Let it be the last thing I think of. Look, and like all of this absolutely worked on me. It was like a little bit goofy, but also like totally heart wrenching. Um, so Sabrina gets shot by Andrew in the movie instead of Adrian. And then Leonard slits his throat at the end. Like he's like, after I kill myself, you guys will have a few minutes and that's it. And then that's when Eric and Andrew have their whole moment. And then... Andrew and Wen, they leave, they leave in the truck, and then they stop at a diner where there's like a bunch of people like holed up, hiding from everything that's going on. And the TV is on and they start to see that like all of this disaster shit is stopping. Yeah. And then the the part that actually really got me was when they go through the stuff in the truck at the very end and they see like Leonard's certificate from all of his second grade students that they had all like signed for him and the picture of Adrian and her son. Um, cause Andrew also was like, fuck you. You don't have a kid. You're just trying to convince us to do this. Yeah. It's so weird. It's such a wild ending from that book. Cause the book is so dark and bleak 
I mean, I've seen people describe it as like angry about religion, which I can see like the book itself. Whereas like the movie is such a, I mean, like hopeful also feels like the wrong word, but like the takeaway is so different from the book that it feels wild, right? Like it's, yeah, like it's like, yes, all of this is real. Love is the only thing that can save us from the terrors of the universe. Uh, I mean, I guess, look, I guess if you phrase it that way, that love is the only thing that can save us from the terrors of the universe, that might be the takeaway from the book and the movie, but like from such totally different directions. Yeah. I mean, I was really impressed by how spot on the movie was to the book for most of it until that diversion. Like it was kind of crazy, but yeah, I mean, the other thing with the movie is Personally, I still have the M. Night Shyamalan twist expectation, and I guess I was wrong to have that. I guess he's trying to step away from his twists, but like most people still think that. And this is such a good movie to have had some kind of twist. And at the end, I was like, what was the twist? Was the twist that it was actually real? And But then they didn't make it sound like fake enough. Right. I mean, I yeah, I mean, I think he definitely is attempting to move away from being the twist guy. But also, I mean, I think some of it, as far as like they're sort of being a twist, is that the the twist is that it's it's real, just like it seems like the whole time, right? Yeah, exactly. It really is real. These people are not crazy. They're not fucking nuts. Could you imagine being one of them? Oh my god! Nightmare. Like, how do you like? How do you find anyone on the internet? Like, is anyone having visions about the end of the world and it's like whispering <laughs> in your ear and you can't drive? You just keep driving random places. Like, then, how would you ever find another person experiencing that? And then you accidentally wind up in QAnon. Oh my god! Yeah, that's so <laughs> crazy. Uh, can I bring up the point that we had? Obviously. Another gory brain coming out of head grotesque experience with this book. When Sabrina hits Leonard with her weapon uh, and it hits his head, it's described as with a wet smack and a chunky thud. <laughs> and she says, his damaged brain stuck on a wailing siren setting because he was screaming. That's awful. So he just kept screaming until she like finally murdered him enough. Right. Ugh. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That was uh, definitely a fun read, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I like the books that make you think mostly I just put myself in that position and be like, what would I do? Right. <laughs> would I kill someone? No, I think I'd just let the world end. Sorry. I, how would I how could I possibly believe that this is real? Right. Enough to kill like the person I love most. Right. Right. It, no, it's such an insane claim that I feel like, yeah, you wouldn't do anything until it got to the point that it did in the book and the movie. Yeah. Right. Like you would just be like, no, this is this is crazy. You people are crazy. Yeah. And how offensive that when was not a good enough sacrifice. I guess the point was it had to be a willing participant but in the movie, it makes it sound like the three of them have to make a choice. And in the book, it's definitely more like Eric and Andrew have to make a choice, like when it's kind of out of it a bit. But in the in the movie, it doesn't feel like she's a part of that choice. So I was also like, is it going to work? Because they said all three of them have to make the choice. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it was just like a hint of a plot hole. Just a hint of a plot hole there. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, what'd you rate it? I think this is like, I mean, I liked it. I think this is like a... Five and a half. This is like a five and a half or a six for me. I'm going to say six. I'll say six. Six. Wow. That's up there. High praise. I give it a 5.1. All right. 
what are our social media ratings? So the Audible rating is 3.4 out of 5. And the Goodreads rating is 3.32 out of 5. Yeah, this book upset people. People really don't like an ambiguous ending. They don't. Everybody wants to be told what the fuck they're supposed to be thinking and feeling and doing at the end of a book. And there was an article that I read that said that Paul Tremblay was like, I love an ambiguous ending in a book. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, this makes sense that you wrote one. Right. I have also read his book, A Head Full of Ghosts, and I feel like that one is pretty ambiguous at the end also. Mm. But very cool. I actually, I might like that better than this book, but I like them both quite a bit. Yeah, I definitely noticed, though, people didn't like the ambiguous ending. People don't like the depressing ending. People didn't like that when died. Does this mean you have a good collection of bad reads? (laughs) I do. I have a good collection of bad reads reviews. Fuck yeah. Here's a one-star review from Michael. Not sure what book all those four and five-star reviewers read, but I don't know how I even managed to finish this thing. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael. (laughs) Well, but you did, Michael, okay? Vicky said, reading this was a waste of time. Nothing happens for any apparent reason. The pacing is terrible. Three hours in and you still have no idea why people are breaking into the cabin despite their pleas of, we just want to talk. And so help me, if I had to hear, I tell you, Andrew and Eric, one more time, I was going to put the book in the garbage disposal. (laughs) Get out of here, Vicky. No, Vicky. Here's Ashley's one-star review. Not to be confused with me. (laughs) No. Yes, no, different. This is the bad Ashley. (laughs) Do you ever read the synopsis of a book? Then you read the actual book and you feel extremely betrayed. That's how I felt when I finished reading The Cabin at the End of the World. After seeing someone read this on Bookstagram and they completely loved it, I finally said, that's it. I'm reading this book now. I regret that decision now because I feel so betrayed by this book. (laughs) Bookstagram? Yeah. Come on. Get with it. Get on Book Talk. All right. (laughs) My bad. Finally, I have a review from Lady H. Oh my god, this was terrible. What is this pointless excuse for a novel? Sure, the concept is interesting and it's very well written, but it's so, so overwritten and padded with useless details to stretch out what should obviously have been a short story or novelette. By the end, I was skimming and skipping past entire pointless paragraphs because, like, do we need five pages to tell us that the characters walked through the forest? Three question marks. The rest of the book was like this. So much pointless waffling and repetition and back and forth. And that ending, zero payoff or explanation or anything. I feel like I just wasted hours of my life on a pointless thought experiment. Oh my gosh. Okay, you're skimming through paragraphs of symbolism, but whatever, Ashley. (laughs) This was Lady H. Ashley was the last one. Oh, my bad. We already dunked on Ashley. Sorry, whatever, Lady H. (laughs) That end, I I just wasted hours of my life on a pointless thought experiment. I mean, if you really think about it, aren't all books pointless thought experiments? Yeah. Isn't that what books are? Just somebody's pointless fucking thoughts written down? Literally. Yes. Like, what is the, like, what is the point? What, do you, what does she want there to be? Do you want to, do you want to, like, log your thoughts for the experiment and change the world or something? Like, what, what is the point of reading a book? It's a pointless thought experiment. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh. Everybody just wants so much. And, you know, I get it. She wants a huge payoff at the end. And we, we definitely don't get that. I think it ended and I go, what? <laughs> but I wasn't, like, mad at it. I was just like, because maybe because I had 
another version where I got an answer. So it didn't feel so bad to not have an answer here. Right. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know. Like, I, I remember even the first time I read this liking the ending. I mean, I liked this overall. Yeah, it's I mean, it's interesting. Like, yeah, it's a thought experiment. It is meant to prompt you to think about the things that are happening in the book and what that might be like and how that makes you feel. Like, yes, that's that's what stories are. Literally. That's what I fucking said I was doing the whole time is what would I do if I was in either of those situations? No, it's pointless. I mean, it is pointless. No one is going to come to me and be like, you must kill someone or the world will end. No one's going to say that to me. I'm also not going to say that to anyone else. It's just like unbelievable. Watch tomorrow. I like have weird dreams and I start making weird weapons. (laughs) It's coming. Look, art is trash. It's pointless. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Why even do it? And objective. Never do art. Never do art. Anything that doesn't have a productive, objective, concrete purpose should not be done. We should quit this podcast. (laughs) (sighs) I can't can't argue with that. You're correct. Well, I think that's the book, huh? That is the book. And the movie. Just tied up. And the movie. Yeah. How did you like the movie, though? Like, I liked it a lot. Okay. Like, I actually really liked it. I thought everyone in it was kind of incredible. Like, I thought all the acting was really good. Yeah. Especially Dave Bautista and Rupert Grint. Literally, the only thing I didn't like was Jonathan Groff's stupid, like, four horsemen goofball speech. <laughs> I was just like, we don't need this. This movie doesn't need this. What we need is him just singing and spitting as a king or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, please sing You'll Be Back from Hamilton. (laughs) Yeah. I liked it, I think. Like, I was really torn. Like, I was like, it was good. It was really well done. The acting was great. And I think I just was, like, expecting a twist, and I didn't get that. And so then I was like, wait, what happened? So I I was in that torn place where, like, I think it was good, but it's not what you're like expecting from M. Night Shyamalan, which I guess we should grow to expect because you informed me that he's trying to get away from the twists. Right. I feel like I was going to say something and I just lost it into thin air. That'll happen. Damn it. Speaking of losing things out of your brain, how's your cool brain? It just feels like one of those days today where... I keep doing like 40 things at the same time, therefore not actually doing anything fully. Right. Yep. <laughs> yep. Just one of those days. Yeah. That's how today is for me too. It's fine. It's totally normal and good. We're going to get through this day, this very weird day. Uh, and then it'll be tomorrow and tomorrow will be the same. Oh my God. That's so bleak. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> I have a suggestion for the next book. Ooh, okay, go on. It's called The Dawn of Everything, and it's nonfiction. It's long. I feel like we might be making a mistake by doing a serious nonfiction book and exposing our squirrel brains to the rest of the world. (laughs) But (laughs) it also might be fun. How long is it? Ooh, uh, I want to say it's like 24 hours long. It's a long listen. Uh, pages, I have no idea. That would be our, our longest here. Yeah, longest ever, for sure. <laughs> How would you describe it? Um, it is, I think, ostensibly about like looking at social inequality through the lens of like the way we tell history and how kind of the Eurocentric framing that we have for history has 
affected that. Here, this is a this is a teaser for how effectively we're going to be talking about big ideas if we do this book. Oof. You know what though? I feel like I saw somebody a couple years ago like post this like this is a must read. I don't know on Instagram or something like some, maybe a celebrity. I don't know. So it's like familiar to me in a way. And we haven't done nonfiction yet, so I kind of like this challenge to see if I can even converse about this book after listening to it for 23 hours. I mean, yeah. Do you have a suggestion? Is there something else you want to do? Or should we just smash our squirrel brains against this thing? I think we smash our squirrel brains and try something different. Um, I know everyone's dying to get back to Colleen Hoover and it starts with us, but we do need to take like a couple book breaks. So yeah. All right. Okay. So the dawn of everything. Yeah. By two guys whose names I don't remember. The cover is yellow and it's the title's in red. That's how you'll recognize it. It's by two Davids, David Graeber and David Wengro. There you go. Cool. All right. We're up for the challenge. We hope you are too. <laughs> I'm terrified how the next one's going to go, but it'll be good. Yep. It'll be great. <laughs> Just kidding. It's Ashley and Corey from a week later. <laughs> Guess what? We didn't finish that book. We didn't do it. We didn't finish it for sure in a week at that length, but we could barely start it, I think. It's just it's just too scholarly. It's not the vibe. I do want to read it at some point, but we're going to pick something else for our sake and yours. Look, I blame the library. My hold on it from the library expired. My hold also expired. Um, and I do think I want to do that at some point. But it's a long book. So long. I need to know things. And they're like talking about these people like I should know who they are already. And, you know, maybe I should have. But guess what? ADHD, baby. Yeah, no, look. Did I pay attention in school? No. We know who we are. And we're not the people who listen to that book. And we're not going to pretend like we are anymore. (laughs) At least not for a while. And also, if you really, really wanted to do this, like, okay, tell us. We could consider it in the future. Broaden our horizons. Bore ourselves. See how stupid we sound talking about this stuff that we don't even know. That's the real thing, is how much do you want us to sound like idiots for an hour? All right, we picked a new book. We did pick a new book. We picked The Quiet Boy by Ben H. Winters. I know I mentioned that a while back, and uh, maybe now is the time to do it, right? I think so, yeah. That seems interesting. I think you miscategorized it in the past when you told us what it was. You said it was like a lawyer book, and I was like, you? We've had this discussion, and that's not what happened. Oh. You looked it up on air, and you said it was a legal thriller. And I said, I don't <laughs> think that's what it actually is. This discussion has happened. I'm so sorry. This is just a peek behind the curtain of how bad we have ADHD. <laughs> this has happened. It's like a speculative fiction thing. There are lawyers in it. I'm not going to pretend like there are not lawyers. Everything I've read about it indicates that there are lawyers, but I don't think it's a time to kill or the firm or anything like that. This book is full of mysteries, not only about the death of a brilliant scientist, not only about the outcome of a medical malpractice suit, dot, dot, dot. The other one says, science fiction, the paranormal, cults, oddball characters collide in this amiable thriller. Something very bad has happened to young Wesley Keener. (laughs) There you go. Speculative fiction. Genre. Something bad has happened. This book is 448 pages. It's 12 hours and 42 minutes on Audible. The Quiet Boy by Ben H. Winters. Join us next time. As you were, podcast. (laughs) That's a wrap on episode eight of the ADHD Book Club podcast. 
Special thanks to The Last Skeptic for music. I've been Ashley. I've been Corey. And? This was a podcast. Yes, it was. Thank you.